0: The gospel is true, amen, Amen. what good news, what great lyrics to sing and reassure our hearts, what greater truth that your sins are forgiven, dear Christian. So let's worship him now through the word preached. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3 as we continue our series through the gospel of Luke. Find ourselves in the genealogy of Jesus Christ according to Luke. One of my goals in life is to be able to read Dr. Seuss's book, Fox and Socks, without any uh, verbal blunders, which is a very difficult <laughs> goal. <laughs> uh, and uh, I sure hope to be able to practice even on reading this genealogy for you and without any blunders. Um, as well, So, uh, yes, we are going to study uh, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and there's great gold in here for us if we have eyes to see it. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 23 to the end of the chapter. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathath, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jannai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semen, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shelthiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosim, the son of Elmadon, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admon, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphashad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of the living God. In the year 2000, Wycliffe Bible translators in one of their publications told the story to their supporters uh, of some Bible translators in Papua New Guinea. And here's what the article said, quote, When a Bible translator in Papua New Guinea started to translate Matthew's gospel, he thought, the last thing I want to do is bog these people down with a genealogy. So he began with chapter two. But the day came when all the other chapters were done. He called together the men who were helping him, and they decided on the best way to say, begat. Then they proceeded with Matthew chapter one. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat. By the time they completed about six of these begats, the translator could sense the men were becoming excited. Do you mean that these were real men, they asked? Yes, he answered. They were real men. That's what we do, they added, referring to their custom of keeping track of genealogies. We thought these men were just white man stories. Do you really mean that Abraham was a real man? Yes, the translator said. That's what I've been telling you. We didn't know that, they said. But now we believe. That night, they gathered the village together and said, listen to this. Then they read the first chapter of Matthew. This chapter was the key for belief in the tribe. Wow. Wow. This morning, we come to a section of Scripture that many are tempted to skip over in their Bible reading. That's why I read it for you, (laughs) in case you haven't actually read it yourself. (laughs) It is one of many genealogies in Scripture. But for some, the genealogies are like the styrofoam packing in the Bible. It serves a purpose, but it's quickly thrown out. And it's maybe you think it's just God was trying to pad the Bible so it was be thicker for us. And we had more uh, room. It's like when you're in college and you're, you've got to write a 10-page s- paper and you're, you're at page six and you're done. So you widen the margin or like le- lessen the margins and increase the font and try and make it bigger and bigger. And you think that's what God is doing with these genealogies. What, why are they here? We wasn't f- just filling up space in the Bible so that it was longer. And it's not the styrofoam packing that we just get the message and then throw it out. No, there are great lessons here for us. While the genealogies may be harder to pronounce and find pleasure in while we are reading them, they nevertheless serve a number of significant purposes in Scripture. Genealogies present a real history of the Scriptures. They show us that the Bible is concerned about history and it is not a make-believe story as this tribe learned. It's like they could be told over and over again that these are real people, but when they heard that they actually had a genealogy that took them back in history, they realized, oh, this is real. why was it that that made them think that? It anchors us in history. The Bible is careful about history, and we've seen that already as Luke likes to mention who the ruling figures were and the religious ruling figures, politically and religious, uh, of his day. And locating this in history. Genealogies also provide us a guide for dating human history. Maybe not down to the very day, but it allows us to walk back and see uh, all the way back to Adam, the history of the human race and God's creation of man on the sixth day. And so it gives us a pretty uh, uh, decent understanding of the history and length of time the earth has been here. Genealogies also protected the land rights for uh, Israel as well as the priestly office and those duties. Now, you might go, well, I'm not that. But, you know, if if this was your land rights, (laughs) you you needed to know your genealogy so you know what your inheritance was, how much land you were gonna get, it would be very significant to you uh, in in that way. Genealogies, though, most importantly, seek to preserve the line of the Messiah. I don't know if you remember this or know this, but Genesis, in the book of Genesis, the divine outline of the book of Genesis is structured around generations. It is this phrase that continues to come up, these are the generations of. And it comes up uh, over 10 times in the book where Moses is showing us the significant. now you think that's the what. That's the structure, the what, but why? Why do it that way, Moses? And it gives us a hint at what Genesis is about and what the Old Testament is gonna be about. And it teaches us that after Genesis three, so creation, marriage of Adam and Eve, (laughs) creation of Eve and and, and their marriage, then you have uh, the fall in chapter three, the promise of the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And then from then on, The question is, who will be the seed of the woman to crush the serpent? And therefore, the rest of Genesis is a narrowing down of who this individual will be, where this individual will come from, who will save sinners and glorify God. And so that is the rest of the Old Testament is a narrowing down of who will this person be and what will they look like and how will we know him when he comes? And so Genesis is structured around that idea. And so genealogies serve as this key way to identify the line of the Messiah and who it would be. And so each genealogy in the Old Testament serves as like another puzzle piece. And you're trying to make the puzzle. And so you get a piece and then you find another piece. And so what's very interesting is you have these different genealogies in Genesis and then you have that structure. These are the generations of, these are the generations of, these are the generations of, And then that's how Genesis goes. But then later in the book of Ruth, at the very end, you read it again. These are the generations. And you get a mini genealogy that connects to David. And so it's like, ah, another puzzle piece connected into Genesis. And it just builds and builds and builds. So then when you get to the New Testament and Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy, and then Luke later in his gospel includes one, it shows us their consciousness of the Messiah and knowing that he has in fact come. You ever wonder and realize that the pharisees who sought to put jesus to death and argue with him about who he was never brought up genealogies as a case in point to disqualify him as the messiah they had public records josephus and philo refer to these public records that were kept probably in the temple uh, where you could go and find out where you were from in your genealogy that's how they were able to show that this is the messiah that's how Luke has this information, as he does his research. And so they're able to go, oh, yeah, uh, this guy's saying he's the Messiah. Check the genealogy. Does he, is he an heir of David? Can he be the Messiah? And so they never bring up, well, Jesus, you don't, even, you don't, meet, you don't meet the, the genealogical uh, credentials. They never bring it up. Because it's sure and it's provable at this time. Now, those records have been lost after 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. But at this time, they were able to show Jesus is the Messiah. And so it's a great way to show the storyline of Scripture and how it's becoming to fulfillment and fruition. Now, this morning may seem a little bit like a sermon and a little bit like a lecture. One of my professors would call this a lerman you know, a lecture sermon. And so there's parts that are kind of lecturey, some that are sermon-esque. Uh, and why that? Well, it's to get me off of any criticism uh, on either way. So if it's not enough like a sermon, then it's a, it's a learning, it's, it's, it's kind of like a lecture too. So that's what we're gonna do. Uh, we have three points that we wanna look at. Um, the principles for reading genealogies, the peculiar, so I can't even read my own outline. The peculiarities of Luke's genealogy, what makes his different in other words, and the purpose of the genealogy. Let's first consider the principles for reading genealogies. A while back, We were studying Genesis in Sunday school, and we got to chapter four, which is the first genealogy in the Bible. And I mentioned to you a friend of mine, a pastor friend who wrote his dissertation on genealogies in the Bible. He had some fun uh, for some time. So I, I leaned on him and an acronym that he came up with to help us to read genealogies better in the scriptures. And so he says, when you get stuck at a genealogy, you need to beep, right? You need to beep. So like people get stuck in the genealogy, you need to beep your horn. And what does the acronym beep stand for? It stands for begin, end, extra, and position. So where does the genealogy begin? Ask that question. Where does the genealogy end? Is there any extra information in the genealogy? And what is the genealogy's position in the text or what is the context of it? And those four questions will help you quite a bit to get at why is this here? Why have they included this? What is its significance and meaning? So let's just briefly look at how Luke's genealogy uh, addresses these questions. Where does the genealogy begin? Well, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Jesus is around 30, and uh, he's kind of maybe 30, maybe a little older than 30, it's just around 30 years old. It's interesting, many key figures in the Old Testament were 30 years old at a significant point in their life. Joseph is 30 when he, is, when he takes responsibility in Egypt, in Genesis 41, 46. David was 30 when he began to reign, 2 Samuel 5, 4. Ezekiel, when he receives the vision in Ezekiel 1, 1, he is 30 years old and he's, he's taking on this role of a prophet. Uh, Priests were to become priests uh, at 30 years old. Numbers 4, 3, and uh, 1 Chronicles 23, 3. 30 is a significant age. And so Jesus is around 30 years old at this time. Now, in addition to where this genealogy begins, not only locating Jesus' age, but also it tells us something about Luke's placement here that's different than Matthew's. Matthew begins his genealogy before the birth of Christ. So he just starts right out with the genealogy, and it leads to the birth of Christ. In Luke, the birth has already happened. Jesus has been baptized. He's 30 years old, and then Luke gives us the genealogy. And so you go, huh, why the placement? Why do it like that? That also relates to the fourth point of the position, but already we're seeing, hmm, this is interesting. He tells us his age as an adult before giving us the genealogy. He also mentions Joseph at the beginning, but it's in a unique way compared to the other people in the genealogy. He says, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. And so it's like a little bit different because all the rest of them are the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. And even in Greek, this is a little nerdy moment. This is the Lerman part or the lecture part. All of these, there's really the son of is not in the original, but it's the idea behind it because really it's just, the definite article, the, and then the person's name. And so it's like the blank, the blank, you know, the Joseph. The, and that's just the way to indicate in Greek that this is the son of. And, and so son of is not like a direct like father-son relationship. It can have more fluidity to be maybe a grandfather or someone in their line, but their connection to them. So with Joseph, though, there's no there's no the before his name like the others. He just kind of floats there, and he's got this parenthetical statement about he was supposed to be. So it's, it's just different, and it kind of catches you. It, it's kind of like a, a nail that you hook your pants on and, and rip, <laughs> rip them on uh, because it, it, it's different than the rest. And so we just notice that. We notice that. So where does it begin? That's what we ask. Now, where does it end? It ends, the son of Adam, the son of God once again, we see a difference between Matthew and Luke because Matthew uh, begins in, with Abraham, but that's as far back as he'll go, whereas Luke goes all the way back to Adam, the first man, and even beyond that, the son of God. So already you're starting to see, hmm, the God-man, he's truly man in that he is the son of Adam, but he's also truly God, the son of God. We already saw in his baptism, just before this, that he was the son, uh, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, and once again, not only in his baptism, but now in his genealogy, he is the son of God. So that's where it ends. And we also notice something different in this, that Matthew moves forwards chronologically, Luke goes backwards. so Matthew begins with Abraham and he moves towards Joseph, uh, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, but Luke starts with supposedly the son of Joseph, but really then the son of Heli, and then moves backwards all the way to Adam. So that's where it ends. Then, is there any extra information in the genealogy Well, yes, the parenthesis about Joseph, that's really the only extra material. And you might say the age of Jesus when he begins this. Now, there's two things that I think this does, this as was supposed. It places Joseph in some way as a parenthetical thought, which will be important for later. But it also reminds us of the virgin conception Luke has already gone out of his way to tell us that Jesus is virgin-conceived. And so now it's, it's just a reminder of that. Hey, Jesus, people thought that Joseph was his father. But we know. He's like Luke saying, but we know. That's not true. Because we know of the virgin conception. That's, that's what he's saying. So then finally, fourth, what is the genealogy's position in the text? What is the context? Well, Luke's genealogy doesn't begin... Uh, The way Matthew's does, Luke's is given just after Jesus' baptism, just before his temptation in the wilderness and public ministry, whereas Matthew connects his genealogy with Jesus' birth, Luke is looking at his adult ministry. So that's a big difference. One gives the genealogy before his birth, his infancy, the other right at the beginning of his public ministry. And that is going to help us, and I'll just give you a little spoiler alert hint, notice how the genealogy ends this is like why does he why does he go backwards and he takes us back to adam there's more than one reason but how does chapter 4 begin it's jesus going into the wilderness to be tempted and what does that sound like being tempted by the devil Hmm. sounds like genesis chapter 3 and so here he is saying he's the son of adam he's another adam Going into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, here is a rerun. <laughs> but it doesn't end the same way. It doesn't end the same way. So it's as, if, it's as if Luke is saying, right before the public ministry of Jesus begins, everything he's going to do is going to be as a new Adam. It's going to be done as a new Adam. And so those are the kind of things you look at when you look at a genealogy and you ask those questions and you begin to see, ah, oh, that's why he put this here. That's why he placed it in this location. So these are some principles for reading genealogies. Now let's look at the per, uh, peculiarities of Luke's genealogy. The peculiarities of Luke's genealogy. What makes his different? Now here's where, an area where unbelievers will bring up uh, as an objection to the Bible. You know, many examples where uh, the harmony of the Gospels shows different perspectives of the, diff- of the different authors, but skeptics will say, well, they didn't say it the exact same way, so there's a problem. And, and that's, of course, true here in that Luke's genealogy is different in a lot of different ways uh, than Matthew's. Why is that? We've already seen, when you compare and contrast Matthew and Luke, you've learned that the pattern is different, the persons are different, the placement is different in the Gospel, and even the purpose somewhat is different in why they're including this in the way that they are. There has been debate uh, for how to best explain the differences between Matthew and Luke's genealogies. And really, um, I did the hard work for you, and there's like four views. I just summarize it to two, okay? To save you, you know, keep you awake. Uh, And uh, there are a number of variations of these views, but really there's two views. One is that both Matthew and Luke are recording Joseph's genealogy, but in different ways. So one would be referring to uh, like the, the physical line of Joseph, like the, the biological line of Joseph going back, whereas the other would be looking at Joseph's line as it looks to the, the right, the legal right to inherit the throne. And so you're like, how could those be different? Well, um, just to show the, the way that you could become a king is, is, could be different than your uh, genie, uh, your. Biological descent as well. And so, uh, so that's one suggestion. And that is a lot of, uh, the, probably the majority these days of commentators that take that position. And it certainly can work. Um, here's what one writer does to explain it. He actually doesn't take this view, but he explains it well. Phil Ryken. He says, "Quote: Matthew and Luke were asking two different questions. Matthew started at the beginning and asked, Who was the next king in, of Israel? Luke began at the end and asked, who was this person's father? And so they approach it in different ways. And so the idea in this view would be that Jesus has a legal right to the throne as well as a biological right to the throne, both through Joseph, his adopted father. Now, it does make sense in in, in a lot of ways, and it very well may be the right view. However, it does require some speculation outside of the biblical text to make things work. For instance, if you look at Matthew, uh, it says that he is the son of uh, Jacob. Uh, and yet in, in Luke, it says he's the son of Heli or Eli. And so you go, how does that work? How are those different? And so there's different proposals given. Maybe there was a marriage, you know, Leviticus 25. I'm not gonna spend time explaining that, but there's different explanations for how that could have worked that are legitimate, but they're just not in the text and we don't have enough information in history to say definitively that that's how it is. So it is a plausible explanation. The other position is that Matthew is recording the genealogy of Joseph, the legal descent of Joseph, basically who's the next one to reign uh, on the throne of David, whereas Luke is recording the genealogy of Mary which is quite simple if you think about it. Like everyone has two genealogies, right? From your mom's side and your dad's side. And so, though Joseph is not his biological father, he's his adoptive father. Therefore, it would make sense that the legal right would come from Joseph, whereas the biological connection would come from Mary, his mother, by whom he is virgin conceived. So, that's the other view. There are some objections to this view. Uh, Luke mentions Joseph, but not Mary. It's like, why isn't Mary in the genealogy then? And it was the custom not to include women in the genealogy. But you say, well, wait a minute. Matthew does include women in his genealogy, but not in the way that you would think because Matthew's inclusion of the three women are in relationship almost as parentheses to the men who are in the line of descent. And so it'll say like, so-and-so, the wife of, or it'll say... um, well, let's just look at it. Don't, don't make it up, Robert. Uh, <laughs> it says, in verse five, Sal- Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. So Boaz is the focus, but he's saying it was by Rahab. And then Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David. And then I'll actually say, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So it's including these women, yes, to highlight Gentile inclusion, as well as God's grace in the way he worked through these uh, different relationships. Um, and, and yet, they're not the actual male descent. So that, that is uh, an objection for sure, but it wasn't common to include the women as part of the line of descent as far as like connecting the dots, does that make sense? So the men are the one who connect the dots. He's giving a parenthesis of explaining these women to make another point. Now, uh, Luke um, what's interesting so so that's a big objection to to the to the to the Mary line is that she's just simply not included. Now what's interesting though is that the Jewish Talmud identifies Mary's father as Heli. So that's what we find in Luke. And what's interesting is, of course, that it could be wrong, it's you know, not outside of the Bible, but we don't really have a reason to doubt that. It certainly would confirm uh, Luke's genealogy. But it may be that uh, in this view, uh, Joseph is simply a parenthesis, as we said. So we mentioned that there's this odd construction here, and so this would make Heli the grandfather of Jesus through his mother Mary, does that make sense? Okay, follow along. Um, and what what this view would say about Joseph being included here is that really, that is to be taken as a big parenthesis, to simply say, really, J- Jesus is supposedly the son of of Joseph, but we know he's not. He's the son of Heli, through Mary. And so it's like he's bypassing Joseph, but he's reminding us, as he has been already, of the virgin conception. And so the idea here would be that he includes Joseph as this parenthesis, and then almost like puts him off to the side and speaks about him differently than he does everyone else in the genealogy. And so that would be indicating that he's giving the genealogy of Mary. Maybe I've lost you. Let me have Geisler and Howe explain it to you in one of their books. It says, while both lines trace Christ to David, each is through a different son of David. Matthew traces Jesus through Joseph, his legal father, to David's son Solomon, the king, by whom Christ rightfully inherited the throne of David. Luke's purpose, on the other hand, is to show Christ as an actual human, So he traces Christ to David's son, Nathan, through his actual mother, Mary, through whom he can rightfully claim to be fully human, the redeemer of humanity. Another question to ask about uh, if it is Joseph's genealogy, why would he spend time telling us that? it's wrong to think that Jesus is the son of Joseph and then proceed to give us the jo- Joseph's genealogy. Um, and, and there are exceptions to that, of course, that you could say. But I lean towards this view. I think this makes the most sense. And here's why. Here's some advantages to the view too. And I'll say, like. It's okay, we can still be friends if you have another view. And I, maybe in a year I'll be different. So <laughs> both of these work, and we just don't have enough information to say like absolutely definitively, but that's okay, we have two good options. But here's some of the advantages of you too, if you're still with us. <laughs> uh, Luke already includes much detail about Mary more than Matthew does. And so it would make sense that he would continue to follow Mary. Also, Mary seems to be an eyewitness for Luke because he, he said stuff like, Mary was treasuring these things up in her heart. And he told us in Luke 1, 1-4 that he did careful eyewitness research. And so it would, it would stand to reason that he has Mary's genealogy here. There's also a simplicity in this view in explaining the differences. You go, why are there differences between these genealogies? Because they're two different <laughs> genealogies, right? They're, one is Joseph, one is Mary. That is pretty simple. They're the family uh, trees of two different people. This would also explain differences like, you know, the son of Heli versus the son of Jacob for Joseph. Also, it uh, gives a double right to the throne in a different way through both of his, through his adopted father as well as his biological mother. Ryken says this, Jesus was descended from David through two different lines, one on each side of the family. In other words, Mary and Joseph were distant cousins. Matthew's genealogy is paternal. It traces the family line from David's son Solomon down through Joseph. Luke's genealogy is maternal. It traces the family line from David's son Nathan down through Mary. Thus Jesus had a double claim to David's throne. He was the true king of Israel both by legal succession and by blood. But I think best of all, this view addresses the problem of Jeconiah's curse. You know about Jeconiah's curse, right? (laughs) Maybe you've forgotten. So let me remind you, this is actually kinda cool. So, uh, go to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one. And let me complicate things for you before I simplify them. (laughs) Matthew one, verse 11. It says, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. You say, okay, Jeconiah. Uh, now some here's an interesting thing a helpful tip as well that we didn't mention about genealogies look for those who you know something about right some of these people you don't know anything about they're mentioned one time in scripture and that's it so like the point of when you're if you're going to preach a sermon on this you don't just like okay we have 42 names we have 42 points this morning you know and it's like let me define each name and what they mean no 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 that's not what you do Uh, because we don't know stuff about some of these guys but we do know stuff about other guys so Here's a guy we know stuff about. In Jeremiah chapter 22, this guy, Jeconiah, is mentioned. And just to complicate it more for you, to make it a little more hard to find him, he has a different name in Jeremiah 22. He has his nickname, really, his short name, Coniah. Coniah, made me think of Conan the Barbarian, you know, Coniah, but no relation. Uh, Jeremiah 22, and it says there's this curse upon him and it says this, Jeremiah twenty-two, twenty-four. 24, "'As I live,' declares Yahweh, "'through Coniah,' that's our guy, Jeconiah. <clears throat> "'It's like calling me Rob, right, instead of Robert. The "'Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, "'were the signet ring on my right hand. "'Yet I would tear you off "'and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, "'into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, "'even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon.' And into the hand of the Chaldeans, I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. Is, not, is this man, Coniah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know. O land, 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 hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Now here's where you have attention, because on the one hand, god promises david in 2 samuel 7 you will always have a man to sit on the throne of david and this is part of the fulfillment of the davidic covenant and yet here's a guy who's in the line of david who's told your descendants will not sit on the throne of david we've got a dilemma this guy fits in one of these genealogies in joseph's genealogy in matthew and so you're like wait a minute." How does Jesus qualify then to be the Messiah? So that's actually not the case that uh, Jeconiah didn't have any children. That wasn't the curse, because in 1 Chronicles 3, we're we're told about his children. It's the idea that none of his children would sit on the throne. They wouldn't have a, a right to it. Those born of you, biologically. So how could Jesus have the right to the throne if this man is in his line? Well, this is what Matthew and Luke seek to settle for us. Jesus is not from the bloodline of Joseph, though he does have the legal descent to the throne because Joseph is an adopted father. Therefore, in God's wisdom, the way to overcome this dilemma of one sitting on David's throne and yet not from Jeconiah is the virgin conception because he's not in the bloodline, he's not the seed of Jeconiah, but he is a legal descendant of David in that line. And so Jesus Jesus being virgin conceived bypasses the curse of Jeconiah by inheriting the legal claim to the throne from Joseph, but in his mother's bloodline in Luke three, this also ties Jesus to David, but not through Solomon, but through Nathan, Solomon's brother, okay? You're doing good, <laughs> good job. I hope you're hanging on there. Here's what Robert Thomas says as he addresses this in his Harmony of the Gospels. Quote, as Jesus's legal father, Joseph's legal claim passed to Jesus. But because Jesus was not actually of Jeconiah's seed, although of actual Davidic descent through Mary, descendant of Nathan, Jesus escaped the curse on Jeconiah's seed pronounced in Jeremiah twenty two thirty. Now, you've got to love the drama of redemption. Like God loves to set these things up in his providence to where you go, okay, here's a promise. Here's a big problem. It's a big head scratcher. And you're going, how is this, this going to work out? Uh, okay, trust God. And then here it is. God works it out. He intentionally sets up this tension and then only to solve it in a magnificent way to bring him glory in a compelling way. Now, I think this best explains it, though the other view could explain that dilemma as well. I'm not saying it can't, but I think this better explains it by simply saying he has his descent biologically through Mary, though Joseph is his legal claim to the throne. So those are the peculiarities of Luke's genealogy, but that then helps us, sets us up for seeing the purpose of Luke's genealogy. Why is this here? Why include this? Why give this to us? Well, Luke really presents a number of key people in Jesus' family tree that help us to discern his destiny. And we see his connection to Adam, the son of man. We see his connection to Abraham, he's the seed of Abraham, and his connection to David, the son of God, and of course, the son of uh, David, he's the son of David, and then his connection as the son of God. Now, it's very evident regardless of the view that you take, that Luke is trying to connect Jesus biologically, physically, down back to Adam. Because his point is, here's a real man. Here's a real man. He connects all the way back to the first man. But let's look at these in opposite order. Let's look at them, and like Luke does, moving our way down to Adam, which is the climax. So just first consider that he is the son of David. And we might say it like this. Jesus is the son of David who can rule for you and with you. In 2 Samuel, the Davidic covenant is given and there's going to be one to sit on David's throne. He's going to have a dynasty that will last forever and it will be to impact all of the world. In fact, it's not just for Israel, but it's also going to be an instruction for mankind. That's what it says in 2 Samuel 7 verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord Yahweh. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord Yahweh. So it is, yes, directly related to Israel, but it's going to have implications for all of the nations. And Jesus is presented in Luke's gospel as the Davidic heir. Chapter 1, Verse 33 says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Why mention Jacob? Well, because Genesis 49.10, Jacob is uh, the one who gives this promise that his son Judah will be the one from whom the scepter shall not depart, the ruler's scepter, the ruler's staff, and it presents for us a narrowing down that the Messiah will come from Judah. Then in the Davidic covenant, it's not just from Judah, it's from David. He'll be a son of David. I said before, uh, I love this illustration someone else used that the Davidic covenant is like the Lord of the Rings. It's like the one ring to rule them all. The Davidic covenant is the covenant to rule all the other covenants. The one who owns the Davidic covenant and sits on David's throne, is able to bring to pass every other covenant and see all of God's plans come to fruition. Jesus is acknowledged and identified as the Davidic king in his first coming, and he's exalted to the right hand of the Father as he rules on the Father's throne, but he is coming again to sit on David's throne. When the Son of Man comes with his angels, then he will sit on his glorious throne he will rule from sea to sea in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And so Luke is connecting us to this one who holds the, the, the has the ability to fulfill that covenant, which completes God's plans for history. I mean, that when the Davidic covenant is fulfilled, it's going to be great on the earth. The new heavens and the new earth, king reigning, us reigning with him. And so he's connecting us saying, this is the one, this is the one. He can do it. And it has impact for all nations. So he's the son of David who can rule for you. Secondly, he's the seed of Abraham who can redeem you. He tells us here that he's the son of Abraham. And we know much about Abraham. Abraham's given the Abrahamic covenant. So we move backwards from the Davidic to the Abrahamic, okay? And the Abrahamic covenant had three main things, land, seed, and blessing that would come to the nations. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we learn later that this blessing is going to come through an individual. Even in Genesis, we learn that there are more senses to the seed of Abraham than just a a plurality of people, that it can refer to an individual, an individual seed. Like the seed of the woman, an individual. And in Genesis 22, verse 17 and 18, it says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in your offspring, that's singular, in your singular seed or offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. He speaks about this individual person who is going to lead to blessing. And that's exactly what Paul picks up in Galatians chapter 3, when he talks about Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 tells us, in verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, or his seed, he says, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. What he's saying is, listen, this, what Moses is talking about in Genesis 22 is an individual. This is where the blessing of Abraham comes. He is this offspring. It is Christ. It is the Messiah. And what does he come to do? He comes to redeem. He comes to redeem. Later in that same chapter, verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith, declared to be righteous in God's sight, redeemed. And this also has, of course, implications for all of humanity. In Psalm 72, Psalm 72, verse 17, we read, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. This is the one where we can find blessing, wholeness, peace with God. The one who is the seed of Abraham. And that's what Luke is highlighting for us here. He's not only the son of David who can rule for you, he's the seed of Abraham who can redeem you from your sins and bring you into that covenant blessing. But he's also the son of man Who can represent you? He's the Son of Man who can represent you. And this is where we see Luke goes all the way back to Adam. He's the Son of Adam. Why do this? Why go back to Adam? Well, Matthew is focused on Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Luke is focused on Jesus as the hope for the entire world, for all nations. And therefore, he takes them back to Adam because Adam was the representative for the entire human race. In Adam, all die. Adam sinned, and his guilt is imputed to us. It's reckoned to our account. And not only that, his pollution for our sin nature is, uh, his pollution, which is our sin nature, is, is uh, given to us as well. And so Adam stood as a representative for all humanity. But Christ stands as a, as a new Adam, one who will represent his people, those whom he represents, And so Luke wants to connect him to say, here's one who's connected back as a new representative for humanity. And we go back to Genesis 3.15 to see this idea to refresh again, this glorious promise. It sets the trajectory for all of Scripture and history where God gives this promise in the wake of the fall. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to Eve. So he says, Uh, or between, he's talking to the serpent. He says, between you, the serpent, and the woman. So individual serpent, individual woman, Eve. But then he, he expands it and he says, between your offspring, your seed, and her offspring. So the people of the serpent and the people of the woman. In other words, the people of God versus the people of Satan. There's gonna be enmity. But then it narrows even more and says, he shall bruise your head. Now it's an individual male, who will bruise the individual Satan on his head, and he, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. And so there's this battle that's going to happen in Sioux where this individual. Now, who is the only other he in human history at this point? He will bruise your head? He's he talking to Eve? Well, the only other man is Adam. There's one man, one he in the world, And so to speak about a he who's going to crush the head of the serpent means already in seed form, in an acorn form, is this idea of another Adam. Adam has failed, 1.0. Here's Adam 2.0. Another Adam, another man is going to undo what the first Adam has done, a new representative. Now, it's not fully formed into an oak tree yet, but it's an acorn, and it's going to be built upon. Paul builds upon this idea in Romans chapter five in 1 Corinthians 15, where he connects Adam and Christ together, and that Jesus is a new Adam. Just as in Adam all died, so in Christ all shall be made alive. In other words, all who are in him, all who are united to him by faith, will be justified, declared to be righteous. This is the gospel, this is the good news of the hope of the gospel. And so Luke is trying to anchor Jesus with humankind, showing the solidarity he has with humanity. He is the savior then for all mankind, not just the Jews. And so he's, he's highlighting the universal nature of Jesus' ministry before he begins. And so why place it here before the temptation and after the baptism? Here's why. Because everything he's gonna do now in his public ministry is gonna be as the identity as the second Adam, as the last Adam. And he's going to do it as your representative. And so when he goes to be tempted, he's going to succeed. But it's your success in him because he's your representative if you're in him. Just like Adam was your representative and he entered into that temptation and failed, that's your failure. But now he's saying, listen, remember, this is another son of Adam. And then next week, we're going to look at this and see his success this rerun, but a rerun with a new ending. Yes, this one, this one can reverse the curse. Rikens says, there had to be a new beginning, a new Adam, a new humanity. There had to be someone who could once again be called the son of God to redeem broken sonship to Adam of Adam. Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of of the people. The fate of the world is wrapped up in this one man. What happens with this man determines the destiny for the whole world. He is the son of man who can represent you and finally he's the son of God who can reconcile you to God. He's the one who, as we saw last week, can adopt you into his family, call you son, say this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Not because you're so well pleasing to God, you know, we're depraved sinners, but because he is so pleasing, because Christ is so pleasing and we are in him. And so Jesus, as we end this genealogy, he's presented to us both as God and man. As he begins his ministry, it's like Luke is saying, he's the son of man. He's the son of Adam. He's truly human. He's also the son of God. He's truly man. And so this one, the God-man mediator, is gonna step on the scene. He's gonna go into the wilderness. He's gonna succeed where the first Adam failed as a down payment, as a first fruits to show us he's gonna be successful in everything he does to the cross, to the resurrection, to the ascension, to his intercession, and then finally to his return and establishment of a new heavens and new earth. In yet another way, Jesus' credentials are confirmed by Luke. The commentator says, Salvation then is the product of God's design and the object of his careful planning. In Jesus, there are no historical surprises. It's a famous statement that summarizes this well for us. Christ, the son of God, became a son of Adam, that we sons of Adam might become sons of God. Are you in him? Are you in the son of man, in the son of God? so that you can be declared righteous, forgiven of your sins, and credited with righteousness. You can be by faith, by looking to him away from yourself and placing your trust in him, the treasure of your soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for preserving for us this connection back to show us the historical reliability of your word and to show us he is the one whom all of our trust and dependence should be He is the one whom all of human history is wrapped up with. The one who holds the right to the throne of David. Who is the seed of Abraham. Who is the new Adam. Who is the one who has brought the new covenant in his blood. And who is the one who will not only forgive our sins, having declared us to be righteous. The one who will sanctify us by his spirit. The one who will glorify us entirely on the day that he comes and the one who will bring restoration and renewal to this creation that we might be resurrected to live on a new heaven, in a new new heaven and a new earth. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray and thank you. Amen.